You're listening to, with the second pick, Steve Francis, the ultra-niche Vancouver Grizzlies podcast where we subject ourselves, I mean, watch, watch old games from the glory days of the Vancouver Grizzlies and break them down in finite detail in an effort to remind ourselves how lucky and in some ways unlucky we were to have a team of our very own right here in Vancouver. I'm Jeremy Allingham, and I'm joined, as always, by the venerable Justin McRoy. How you doing, Justin? Jeremy, I'm optimistic. We're still in season one. The moon is our oyster. Anything is possible with this team right now. They could win, they could lose, but the sky's the limit for the Vancouver Grizzlies. And we all have to have that optimism of year one Vancouver, when big country is a project, when Brian Winters is a coach on the rise, when Stu Jackson is not a curse word. I'm ready for the rest of this season, and I'm ready for today's game. When they're three and twenty-one, when they're <laughs> they've literally lost twenty. Wait, twenty-one in a row. of their last <laughs> twenty-one <laughs> of their last twenty-two games, nineteen in a row. Just brutal. But hey, I, I do appreciate your optimism. It's always good to bring that energy. And this was a this was a fun night playing against a powerhouse team. Not just a powerhouse team. The closest team to Vancouver, a team that had been a powerhouse for years and years. If you lived in British Columbia, before there was the Vancouver Grizzlies, you were probably watching the Seattle Supersonics. Payton, Kemp, Shrimp, Hawkins, year after year of uh, all-stars, of 50-60 wins, and of playoff disappointment. And suddenly, you have the Vancouver Grizzlies in town. You have their first game at home against Seattle. This was a pretty big deal. Yeah, and I mean, I would say I I concur with what you said is I actually had to shed in some ways my Sonics fandom to become a Vancouver Grizzlies fan because that's what we saw in our local TV market. We had Gary Payton, the glove, out there with his swagger and his trash talk, his physical play, his great passing out of the post, and of course the rain man, Sean Kemp. And you alluded to it, they were... Dominant 57, 63, and 55 wins in the previous three seasons. And if you go back to 1993, they took the Phoenix Suns, Charles Barkley and the Phoenix Suns, to game seven and almost went on to face the Bulls in the final. But Charles Barkley put up a 44 24 on them in game seven. And then, as you alluded to, the big playoff disappointments began. Round one, the famous loss against the Denver Nuggets where Dikembe Mutombo has the ball like smashed against his head, uh, laying on the ground yelling. And then the next year, just a forgettable, underwhelming loss to the LA Lakers, whose best players were like Nick Van Exel and Vlade Divac. And then they come into 95-96 and we know what happens there. A great season and a big run to the finals. This is Cedric's Ballos Horatio and I will not stand for it. But the... (laughs) Seattle was a big deal if you lived in Vancouver, by which I mean the team, the city. It was something that uh, if you were a Vancouverite, if you were a British Columbian, 
this was something you wanted as a rivalry, as a connection, as the thing that really could form a key sort of fun arc that we see now in BC sports between, uh, you know, the Sounders and the Whitecaps, between, you know, when the Blue Jays come to town and to the Mariners and tens of thousands of people come over the border to watch those games. That's what we were hoping for. In Seattle, I don't think they cared that much. This was another... No, no. <laughs> This was another bad uh, team, and they had bigger fish to fry, like, you know, maybe getting to the championship that season. And also, I mean, we know that Seattle and Portland have a real deal rivalry, and it's mentioned twice in the opening, I'd say, 15 minutes of this game by the brilliant Kevin Calabro, the play-by-play guy uh, for the Sonics at this time, that, hey, the Grizzlies, they may have only won three games, but two of them have been against the Portland Trailblazers. So they already have their rivalry with Portland, and it's us in Vancouver who are kind of like, hey, hey, we're up here. Like, don't you hate us? Don't you want to get into it with us? And it wasn't a thing as yet. And of course, would never become one. But it was an aspirational um, rivalry for sure. You mentioned the announcers. And I want to talk about the game that we watched. It was on the Seattle broadcast. Welcome back to Vancouver. Kevin Calabro now joined by Marcus Johnson here in Vancouver. Big Country play a little bit better, and the fans are, eh, keeps them interested, keeps them focused on the team. Well, Big Country finally got rid of Benoit Benjamin. That allowed him to have a lot more minutes, a lot more playing time. He's averaging six and it was interesting, because I remember in the 90s thinking that the Sonics broadcasts were high quality and enjoying the job, and I didn't know whether that was childhood nostalgia. Kevin Calabro is an outstanding announcer still to this day. He just finished being with the Portland Trailblazers last year. And but Marcus Johnson... Also great. This was a fun game to watch and to listen to simply because of their call. And I was just, I, I loved it. And because, like, you know, I've, I've mentioned before that a, a few of these games when I've watched them, I've kind of, it's taken me a while to get into them because it can be tough to watch the basketball. And then once you start to buy into the story, you get into it. But from right from the start, I was thoroughly entertained by these guys. I loved it. Really, honestly, I, I would almost go as far to say that this is the best broadcasting duo I've really ever got to listen to. I mean, you might put obviously like Van Gundy and um, Mike National Green and those teams, guys yeah. higher, but like as far as a local team uh, broadcasting their game, they were really funny. They were edgy. They were irreverent at times and even barring on inappropriate with their humor. Um, I looked it up and at the time, they're both under the age of 40. So they're about our age and they're just having so much fun with it. You can tell they really care. Marquez Johnson is hilarious like he was i got a few examples here uh he kept talking about how big country is from gans oklahoma and how small of a town it is and then he says big country out of gans oklahoma population 300 miss america this year she's from a small town about 50 miles away all the beautiful people from oklahoma clearly tongue-in-cheek <laughs> facetiously then he calls legendary portland blazers uh trailblazers center against arvidas big head sabonis to snap he says big country has very slow feet defensively, which that's more just true, but, yes. you know, calling a spade a spade. And then a really bizarre one because he played for the Milwaukee Bucks and was a five-time All-Star in the NBA. And he was a teammate of Brian Winters, head coach of the Grizzlies. And Winters gets a tech early on, a technical foul. And Johnson says... This has got to be tough for him to endure 3-21, the 19-game losing streak. He's such a competitor, kind of a real introspective person, so I know it's just eating him up inside. But if he gets that second technical, look for him to spit all over Terry Durham. 
<laughs> Which I'm just like, did I miss something here? Like, does Brian Winters have a history of of spitting on refs? But anyway, there's a lot of really kind of like sideways, weird comments. But like, I don't know. I really enjoyed it. We've set this game up. We've gone through what Seattle meant. Vancouver, we know they're an expansion team. They're not great. The day was December 19th, 1995. It was at GM Place. The Seattle Supersonics were 15-7. and seven. The Vancouver Grizzlies were 3-21. and 21. Let's kick it off. Let's look at the starters for just before we get into it. Uh, Seattle was starting David Wingate, Hersey Hawkins, the Rain Man Sean Kemp, Gary Payton, and Sleepy Sam Perkins. I wanted some Detlef. I wanted Shrimp, and yeah. we're not going to get those sweet 18-foot set shots. So it's tragic, really. Yeah, no super stiff mid-range game today from Detlef, though we get it a bit from uh, Vince Askew. But, uh, and then the Grizzlies. Oh, this starting lineup's tough mm. to read out because they're, they're really ravaged by injuries. They're actually coming off a game in Sacramento the night before, and they're on a four of five, four games and five-night stretch. Meanwhile, the Sonics have had three nights off, um, but we've got Blue Edwards, uh, regular, Big Country, regular, Chris King, and then Anthony Avent and Eric Murdoch because Greg Anthony's out starting at point. And we've talked in the first two episodes we did about how, like, Greg Anthony is the one player on Vancouver that can bring pace, and you could say, hey, he could be in the rotation for any NBA team in the league. So going into all of this, you have to think it's going to be tough for the Grizzlies. And indeed, at the very beginning of uh, the game, Peyton gets a three. Payton gets on the break, he scores again, Sam Perkins gets a three, and suddenly it's 8 nothing, just like that. And you're thinking, this is going to be a long night. Well, yeah, and I mean, th- and that being said, you're kind of expecting it too, because the first time they matched up, the Sonics absolutely blew them out by, I believe it was 31. So the start is just like, oh boy, here we go. And you know the Grizzlies are coming back from a road trip, and they just suck. But the response to that Sonics start from the Grizzlies is what I would call horrifying and like just offensive offense. They're just coming down. It's Eric Murdoch. He's just pounding the ball like James Harden, but only not going anywhere with it. (laughs) And he's just waiting for big country to post up and absolutely forcing the ball to him. Like, you know, this has to be an edict from winters, like force feed country in the post. It's not working. Country's not making shots. He's getting fouled a little bit. He's turning the ball over. And you're just like, this could be a super long night to watch this this team. Yeah, the Grizzlies offense is not good. But in that first quarter, after that first Sonics run, Blue Edwards heats up a bit. He gets a long two and a long three. Anthony Avent at one point gets an and one on Sean Kemp, which has to be a career highlight. And at the end of the day, after the first quarter, the Grizzlies are still in it. They're only down 30 to 25, all things considered, not bad. First quarter ends. Time for our first segment of the game that we like to call Watching Big Country. And Jeremy, you alluded to it already, but this was very clearly in the first season, in the middle of the first season, the Grizzlies get the ball to country in the post. He's going to learn. He's going to improve by just getting it time after time. And it was very much a work in progress. If I'm a season ticket holder at this point or a paying fan or any kind of fan, like I'm honestly offended by the way they approach this game because they treated it basically like a de facto training camp or a de facto preseason game 
where they basically ran nothing else in that opening quarter, hardly anything else except dribbling straight down the court, country posting up and just waiting until they could get it into them or not. And it was the first option every time. It wasn't working. They were collapsing down on big country. He didn't have any of that energy or that kind of like rigor that we've seen in, a, in the, you know, the Bulls game that we watched. He looked really tired from the start and they end up playing him 45 minutes. I Like, was this a punishment? Like, did he say something <laughs> rude? Did he, what did he do? Like, I, I don't understand. It's, it's embarrassing for the guy. We get into the third quarter and we'll talk about it a bit, but he's standing straight legged for full possessions. Clearly, like he can't handle 45 minutes. Honestly, most people can't. Most people can't play 45 minutes in the NBA. So I, I'm really struggling to figure out what they were actually trying to do here. And Eric Mobley was a surface backup center that they brought in was there and played 21 minutes as well. So they could have gone more traditional, just have one center on the court at the time and have country play way less. He didn't embarrass himself on defense too much. You know, he wasn't exposed there. But yeah, one for 10 from the field. He falls on a camera at one point. <laughs> the wisecracks from the announcers, and at this point we've watched enough games where it's like, yeah, on one hand, the cracks about his weight are becoming a little bit overbearing and mean. On the other hand, he is still not developing. He is still out of shape. He is still very much a project. Yeah, and I mean, 25 games in, for the amount of time they're giving him and the amount of attention they're paying to him as a franchise, I mean, it's a bit disappointing to see. Nine points, 11 rebounds, two assists, only two turnovers, which I found surprising based on how many times he kind of juggled and kicked the ball when he got the ball in the post. And yeah, that one for 10 was pretty egregious and by the way those nine misses weren't uh weren't in and out no. barely rimming out like these were <laughs> front of the rim he had no legs he was exhausted it really felt like one of those mean nfl football training camps from the 1970s where it's like this practice isn't a practice till y'all pass out from like dehydration like he just looked he looked awful and in some ways i was mad at him but more i was way more mad at winters and probably Stu jackson for kind of just being like well you get 45 minutes of country tonight just why just a regular prank you play in practice except it's an nba game it is the second quarter now gary payton is clearly the best player on the court on this night go payton picks the rebound of midcourt here he comes challenges three grizzlies drives to the hole and scores beating murdoch he gets a nice layup at one point, really is able to penetrate to the basket a lot. But the Grizzlies are keeping it close in spite of the fact that their rotation right now is just a nightmare. Uh, we talked about Greg Anthony out of the game and what happens when that's the case. They've got at one point Ashraf Amaya, Eric Mobley, and Doug <laughs> Edwards. And we'll get to Doug Edwards in a bit, but this is the Grizzlies had a lot of stiffs in that first year more than any other season. And this game was a particular highlight or low light for that. And yet they're still competitive. And let, let's talk about the glove for a minute there. Uh, Gary Payton was my favorite player for a long time. I was a point guard. I played point guard. And so I really loved the glove. And the one thing that jogged my memory about the way he played in this game, which I absolutely love because so few guys play like that anymore is he was a point guard who loved to operate from the medium to low post. So he would literally just like turn his ass around and back 
Eric Murdoch or later on in the game, Derek Martin down to the block. And he wasn't really always looking for a shot. He was just surveying the court and he would just make these pristine passes right on the money to Hersey Hawkins, right on the money to Nate McMillan. And he's just facilitating as a point guard from the post. And that's kind of like a lost art. Um, you see LeBron do it um, from time to time in more like playoff situations. But to see that dude wheeling and dealing from that position was was really cool. At a certain point in the second quarter, after we get uh, Ashraf Amaya and Mobley and Edwards in, the Grizzlies finally realize, hey, we have a three-time NBA champion and one of the top like 200 players of all time in the NBA at that point on the bench. That is Byron Scott, and they finally decide at like the 20-minute mark of the game to bring him in. Grabbed by Scott for the baseline, pull up Jay, he nailed it. Byron Scott with six points, he has two. And then he calmly makes a nice couple of long two-pointers, and you have to wonder why was he not in there earlier. Yeah, that was really confusing to me because I'm looking at Ashraf Amaya and, like you said, Doug Edwards and going, well, I know some guys are hurt, but is Byron Scott hurt as well? And no, Audi trots, what, 18, 20 minutes into the game, and I'm kind of trying to, I'm trying to think that through going, okay, yeah, they played the night before, they had to travel, he's a little bit older, but... What's the difference whether you bring him in, you know, a couple minutes into the second quarter or mid-second quarter? Like, they could have used his burst of energy and his scoring touch way earlier. The second quarter is, for the most part, back and forth. Sonics have the lead the entire time. Right near the end, Blue Edwards has a long three. He really is feeling at this game. And it's halftime. It's 56-49 to 49 for the Seattle Supersonics. And that leads us to our traditional now halftime segment called... What did Stu do now? <sighs> so what did Stu do now Stu, being Stu jackson our um Beloved. favorite fella <laughs> our favorite fella on this podcast Stu jackson who i you know still fairly or unfairly blame for us losing our beloved grizzlies and we've talked about his expansion whiffs before but this is an expansion whiff of a different variety not only did he select Doug Edwards, a underperforming player from the Atlanta Hawks who only played a handful of game, games for the Grizzlies, he selected Doug Edwards with four years left on a big contract. Averaging over a million dollars a season, which in the early 90s, when D Doug Edwards signed that fresh off of being the 15th overall pick for the Atlanta Hawks, six years, something like $7 million, that's a risk that a team can t take, obviously. He played two seasons for the Hawks. He was quite ineffective. But, you know, things happen. He was placed on uh, as a possibility for the expansion draft, despite only playing 54 NBA games and not really showing anything during that time. And Stu, for whatever reason, decided he was going to pick Doug Edwards and his four remaining years and million-plus dollars per year average salary and put him on the team. And I don't know what the conversation was like in 1995. I was eight years old. But in today's NBA, in today's all professional sports, like salary cap space is key. Length of contract is key. You simply don't commit to long-term contracts unless you know there's a decent chance that this player can pan out. And Stu 
commits these four years, commits all this money that the team then can't pick other free agents in future years. You see this come up in newspaper articles where they say, well, they're going to be limited because they have Doug Edwards on the team. And what did Doug do? The first season, he plays 31 games for the Grizzlies. Doesn't do much of all. Averages three points a game. Averages only like 12 minutes a, a game. Then he gets injured. Then he doesn't play in the second season. Then he doesn't play in the third season. They waive him before the fourth season happens, having to eat the salary. And all this time, he's been injured. Immediately, you read articles and management started to sour on him right away. And you go, the Grizzlies could have picked anyone with their last pick in the draft. They had many options that would not limit themselves in the future. And yet, Doug Edwards was the person they picked the biggest albatross contract, quite possibly, that Vancouver had. And this is funny because as a big fan and as a big Stu critic, I know about, you know, the top 10 bad, what did Stu do nows? <laughs> but this one this is, is one a I niche didn't know one. about. <laughs> this is the one I didn't know about and not the one, one that I didn't know about. And looking at this, I feel like this one has to crawl up the list a little bit. Like we might have to adjust the uh, bottom 10 for Stu here. Because at the end of the day, Otis Thorpe played, Antonio Daniels played, Big Country Reefs played, Steve Francis, they were able to get assets for. Doug Edwards, once again, four-year contract, over a million dollars each year, 31 games, three points in each of them, one of the biggest what-did-stew-do-know moments, and that's saying something. It's time for the third quarter. Again, there is sloppy play happening throughout this. The Grizzlies, you expect this because outside of Blue Edwards having an above-average game, they don't really have, and Byron Scott, they don't really have too many solid NBA players they can pick from. You would expect more from the Seattle Supersonics, though. They are a great team. Detlef Schrempf is not playing, but otherwise all of their all-stars uh, are in the game. But at one point, a couple points, the announcers mentioned something that might give a little hint as to why they're a little bit lethargic, why they're a little bit sloppy, and that is the flu. Or is it the flu? <laughs> well, I mean, that was really interesting to hear, especially in time of pandemic, just casually mentioning that, oh, yeah, six or seven of the guys on the team are really sick right now. Like they're they're later in the game. They're talking about how Irvin Johnson, not Magic Johnson, the other Irvin Johnson was like moaning on the bus and like calling for his partner. I'm not sure who it was, his girlfriend or his wife or whom. But um, yeah, they were really playing up. These guys are sick. They're sick. They're sick. And the question you and I had is they had three days off. Like, is this some sort of Roxy flu or 26 ounce flu or what, what kind of flu is this? Because uh, again, this is uh, the, the 90s still. And this is when the Roxy had their heyday of being infamous. And we do have it on record that Ch Chicago Bulls went to the Roxy as well and underperformed, as we talked about the last game, were pretty <laughs> sluggish. So it is not out of the realm of possibility here considering just how many players had this quote-unquote flu and how they could not get it going the entire night. In the middle of the third quarter, it's back and forth, but slowly the Grizzlies go on a little bit of a run, an 11-3 run as a matter of fact, and it's led by one Chris King, who seems to be having a little bit of a revenge game. Wingate curls into the lane. King comes over for the rejection, spanks it off the glass, recovered by Vancouver.
I love it. Revenge game for Chris King. He he looks like he's got some spring. He's got some bounce and some hops. He's got a block. He's got a dunk. He's kind of flying around the court like we haven't really seen him do other than the the famous tip in the in the Timberwolves game. And you hear the announcers say Chris King started with the Sonics and Calabro completely gutters him and says, didn't have attention to detail on defense and didn't have much of a jump shot. So really there wasn't much room for him on the Sonics. Meanwhile, he's been kind of taking it to the soups in the third quarter. And I do want to mention, because I bet you people are wondering, why haven't they been talking about Sean Kemp? And the reason is, is that Sean Kemp, I will actually for once have to give Brian Winters some credit here, at least for the <laughs> first three quarters. They double Sean Kemp in the post every single time he touches the ball. And it's really frustrating to Kemp. Like you can see he's forcing it. He actually had six turnovers on the game. He did have four blocks and a couple of, of thunder dunks. But in 37 minutes, he was four of 10 with 12 points and those six turnovers. So the Grizzlies actually did a fantastic job of frustrating Kemp. And just with that double team, he was facilitating, but you could tell he was pissed off and he wanted to put up better numbers. He was facilitating. Peyton didn't have his shot. Hawkins was slow early on, though he did heat up. It's a bad sign for Seattle if Vincent Askew is your top performer from the perimeter. But that was uh, the case throughout. Third quarter, the Grizzlies, like I said, leading. However, Sonics come back at one point. Uh, they get a nice Kemp dunk. Peyton gets an and one. At the very end of the third quarter, Reeves gets an air ball. He's now zero for eight from the field. He calls for the ball at one point. Scott can't get it to him. He chews him out. It is not looking great for our Vancouver Grizzlies as they go down in the third quarter, 73 to 69. Yeah, and we get um, another weird substitution as well from Brian Winters. Derek Martin, famous uh, trash talker to Michael Jordan, trash talker to the stars. <laughs> he comes in way late halfway through the third quarter which again he provides a spark and he's pretty decent out there and i still and i don't understand like did he break curfew the night before or what because you'd think that wouldn't be possible because they'd be traveling back from california so that was an odd situation as well and as you said kemp had a big dunk sorry it was blue blue edwards drives the baseline and throws down a big dunk and Kemp has a putback right after. So there was actually a little bit of entertainment in that third quarter. Speaking of the blue, it's time for our next segment called Better Know a Grizzly. And today we do talk about the one, the only, the Chucker himself, probably the second best player on the Grizzlies in that first season for better or worse, Blue Edwards. Theodore Edwards and a weird moment of this game. We talked about, um, we talk about kind of the edgy, weird out of left field humor from uh, Marcus Johnson and Kevin Calabro at the beginning of the game. They actually talk about the Genesis of his name, blue Edwards. Now I haven't fact checked this, but this is the story they told. He got that nickname blue when he was a year old. He was choking on his bottle when his face turned blue. So his mama started calling him blue. That's what he said. Okay. I mean, I'm just praying that's not the actual reason, but that was the story. He was born in Washington, D.C. He played two years at East Carolina. He was a first-round pick of the Utah Jazz in 1989, 21st overall. Made second-team all-rookie in his rookie year. 
goes on to a really, really solid career. Like, you know, we poke fun at these guys and say all kinds of, of crap, but 704 career NBA games for this guy. Like, that's outstanding. Three seasons with Vancouver, three and a half with Utah, two with Milwaukee, and a short stint in Boston. His Grizzlies averages were 10.7 points a game, 3.4 rebounds, 2.4 assists, 1.1 steals on 42% field goal, 33% threes, 80% free throws, and that's in 28 minutes a game in those three years as a Grizzly. He he was not bad at the, the end of the day. He was a little bit overexposed with the Grizzlies. He had to do a little bit too much, create a little bit too much of his shot, and his legs, you know, he was 30 by the time he got to Vancouver, so he didn't quite have the spring in his step. He was shooting, you know, 51%, 52% when he was with the Jazz. With uh, the Grizzlies, it was, you know, 42% one year, 40% another 44%. So it wasn't quite there. But he gave minutes. He was a popular player when he was here. Of course, now, you know, if you ask a random person on the street if they remember anything about Blue, it may be those behind-the-scenes things that happened that created, weirdly, the only Lifetime movie ever about a Vancouver Grizzly. There was a Supreme Court case about a custody battle over a four-year-old kid that he had um, outside of his marriage with... Um, I guess a woman that he met at a sports bar. I haven't read too much into that, but I, I do remember that being kind of like a big grizzly scandal back in the day. Looking back at it, it doesn't seem quite as serious as it seemed to res. I mean, it was serious, but it wasn't, I guess, by today's standards, nearly as scandalous as I would have expected based on how I remembered it as like really, really bad. Maybe I'm forgetting some details. Uh, and as far as his performance, I mean, if you've got a team and Blue Edwards is your sixth or seventh guy, I think you're doing pretty well. Like, he can play defense. He's super durable. Six times in his career, he played more than 80 games in a season. I mean, that's that's outstanding. That's Ironman level. And so, as much as Blue Edwards should definitely not be your second best player on your team, he is a solid contributor to this Vancouver Grizzlies squad. I just want to say the title of that movie in America was called What Color is Love, which is so cringeworthy. Oh, and my God. <laughs> oh I my do have to. But yeah, it's like we remember it as big at the time. To, you know, to the 90s were a little bit more to innocent and the off-field exploits of NBA players were maybe a little less known to the general public and there might have been a little bit more moral panic. We go to the fourth quarter now. And uh, again, the Grizzlies are managing to stay in this game the entire time. And it is not because of big country. It's not really because of their defense. It's not really because of Eric Murdoch stepping in for Greg Anthony well. It's because they are making, by the standards of mid-1990s basketball, a boatload of three-pointers. Recovered by Mobley. The outlet pass to Scott. He'll pull up and fire the three for the lead. He got it. Byron Scott with 16. Totally. They've got Derek Martin making a couple. They've got Byron Scott making threes and they've got blue Edwards shooting those moon high arcers and they're all connecting. And I believe the Grizzlies end up shooting a great percentage on this game on a really quaint number. It's really cute. They shoot 15 threes, which is just like hilarious to look at by today's standards, but they make nine. So nine of 15 is 60%. Anytime in any level of basketball in any era, if you're making 60% of threes, you've got a good chance of winning the ball game. 
I just love how in the 1990s there was, yeah, well, the three-pointer is worth more, and there are some people that can do it very well, but we'll just ignore it for the most part, because tradition. Uh, the fourth quarter keeps going on. Uh, Grizzlies are now mostly neck and neck. However, at a certain point, they stop double-teaming Kemp, and he becomes a little bit more involved in the offense. And this just blew my mind to the point of like yelling at the screen at a 25-year-old basketball game. Guys, you literally have been stopping an all-world player this entire game by double-teaming him in the post, and they haven't been punishing you with outside shooting. Why would you stop now? Like, keep it going? And they just stop inexplicably, and Kemp's like, oh, finally I have some room to breathe, and um, he starts creating some stuff. He's, he gets a, a really nice dunk by turning the corner on Mobley, and they can't really stick with him. And you see why Sean Kemp's so dominant and so beloved across the NBA universe, but it's inexplicable that Winters or whomever decided that it was time, you know, good enough. We've double teamed them for 42 minutes. Yeah. For these last six minutes, let's just see, let's, let's let them have some fun. Let's let Sean Kemp get his, like it made no sense to me at all. This isn't a supersonics podcast. Otherwise we would spend so much time gushing about Kemp, but that physicality oh, God, for the 1990s is uh, something else. In spite of him getting more involved in the game, no one else on the Sonics is really doing anything. The Grizzlies are keeping pace with threes. And then we get to the key point in the game. It's 91-89 for Seattle for about a minute and a half. The clock is ticking down. Then suddenly, Blue Edwards gets a three. Reeves, out Edwards, raises, bombs, got it. Oh, Whoa, Edwards! Uh, that'll make you blue, but that was just a terrific jump shot. Grizzlies take the lead 92-91. Then Kemp misses a runner. Blue gets the ball. He penetrates. He gets fouled. And the team celebrates, and the crowd is really amped. This, by the standards of Vancouver Grizzlies basketball games, is a moment. Totally, and... <laughs> When he drives to the hoop and takes the foul, he's headed to the free throw line and Marquez Johnson says, don't choke the baby in reference back to the to the blue nickname Genesis, which just another example of how kind of crazy they were. And he hits both free throws with 39 seconds left on the clock. And even though I knew the result of the game, the Grizzlies kind of celebrated. They almost had relief on their faces and they were kind of hugging and smiling and it didn't have the look of a resolute team who was ready to like batten down the hatches, tighten up on defense, and really be like, we're closing out this game and we're going to stop this awesome Sonics team in their past. It looked more like, oh, thank God we might have our fourth win of the season. Like, is that a reflection of just not understanding how to win games? Or was it, were they just so downtrodden by the losing at this point? that even a sniff at a win was so much relief that they just had to like let it out with 30, you know, 39 seconds left. I I'm not sure what you thought of that. Yeah, I do love, like, there is 39 seconds left. It's like, come on, guys, this is, you're facing a great team, and this is not by any means over. And indeed, Sonics get the ball, give it to Kemp. Kemp shows that, oh, yeah, I'm Sean Kemp, I'm an all-star, and you're the Vancouver Grizzlies. He gets a menacing dunk. Now it's 94-93, three-second differential between the shot clock and the game clock. Murdoch misses a floater. He really did not do anything throughout the game. Seattle gets the ball back with six seconds, timeout, and because I'm a Vancouver Grizzlies fan, I go, oh, Seattle scores. This is, I'm ready for heartbreak. I accept heartbreak. I know heartbreak. 
somehow this is not going to turn Vancouver's way. Yeah, it felt like it was going to happen. And the Sonics come out of that timeout, and you're thinking, I mean, they're going to get a really quality look out of this. Check on the clock. They'll bring it in bounds to Kemp. Hard cut outside. Into the lane. Lost it. Right to Sam. Three, two. Fires. Rimming. One. Vancouver wins. Vancouver wins. The Grizzlies upset the Sonic tonight in Vancouver. And they do go to Kemp in the post. And he gets a little kind of spazzy with it. He heads into the lane and he, I think he like literally boots it. He loses the ball. And I think it goes off his knee or his shin or his foot. But... It deflects out to Sam Perkins at 45 degrees outside the three-point line. And it gets contested, and Sam puts it up. And in most cases, that would go in and break everybody's hearts. But no clang off the rim. Grizzlies fight for the rebound. No other shot. Game over, 94-93. Grizzlies win, and Calabro says... And they were going nuts in Vancouver. He says this win has meaning, and it did have a meaning. These are the sort of things for a typical expansion franchise that you look at those markers of, all right, we show we can play with the big teams. We're going to use this to build upon. And like everything else with Vancouver, it never happens. But in that moment that they could stay neck and neck with one of the top teams in the league, that they could beat them at the end of it without Greg Anthony in the game, with Big Country going one for ten. You had to have a little optimism at that point. Yeah, I mean, it's nice to to beat such a great team like that. And, and you know, throughout the game, it felt like a foregone conclusion that at some point the Sonics would just kind of do what the Bulls did and just hunker down and be like, yeah, we're going to beat you now. And so to get that win was awesome. But part of me is kind of pissed about it, too, because... I feel like in a way Winters and probably Jackson got rewarded for that just idiotic use of big country. Those 45 minutes where he, he just literally can't play. He can't stay on the, I mean, he does stay on the floor, but he can't play basketball. I mean, I don't know, maybe it's a nineties thing versus now, but like, you've got to think that a professional athlete, like does that help him? Does that, okay. Maybe he got in, you know, 3% better shape by playing that game, but what does that do to your confidence as a player to be left in like that and not be able to, you know, one for 10 from the field? It was very weird. And I feel potentially indicative of just strange decision-making in all kinds of different ways with this Grizzlies team, but yes, a victory and you got to enjoy them when you get them. So nice to see that in the end here. The postscript is tragic, like most Vancouver Grizzlies stories. What looks like the beginning of a beautiful friendship, a wonderful rivalry between uh, the two cities near the border that could last for decades does not work that way. Two days later, the Vancouver Grizzlies face the Sonics in a rematch. The Sonics win 92-68. to The Sonics <laughs> end up winning 18 of the remaining 20 games the two teams have together in this rivalry. The Vancouver Grizzlies stop becoming an NBA franchise. A few years later, the Seattle Supersonics stopped becoming an NBA franchise. Still, to this day, we still have no basketball of NBA teams in the Pacific Northwest, north of Portland. And we just have these old games between the Grizzlies and Sonics to remind us of how we could enjoy it all. Oh my god, that's so depressing. But on that note... This has been, with the second pick, Steve Francis, the Ultra Niche Vancouver Grizzlies podcast... I'm Jeremy Allingham. 
for Justin McElroy. Thanks for listening and just watch out for our next episode.